0: As we gather this Lord's Day morning on the first day of a new month, the first day of a new year, um, we have some folks away, and it also is our custom when we do have the beginning of a new month to open the class in the Sunday school hour in open form. So I know a number of months prior, there's been very little in the way of questions prepared. So I have a backup plan, but I'm going to give you an opportunity if you have a question. Uh, to raise it this morning. I see one hand already going up. Somebody has come prepared with a question this morning. Michael, go right ahead. Uh, um, I was wondering, um, because I've actually had uh, this issue, when is the right time to leave a church, or in my case, a Bible study? (laughs) Um. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Okay. Um, yeah, when is the right time to leave a church or a Bible study? It, it, it have, yeah, it's a lot of discourse, and I was just. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I just wanted to ask you for you know for getting a nice general overview or whatever. Yeah. Well, of course, questions like that, I think of Paul's words to the church at Corinth in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians when he's addressing those that are married to unbelievers I mean there's something even more intimate and more, more you might say legal binding the covenant of marriage in which a commitment is made to uh, one person to another and yet if a believer is married to an unbeliever who doesn't want to persist in the marriage over the things of uh, the gospel uh, Paul says in such cases the believer is not bound and he makes the statement, for God has called us to peace. In other words, in the midst of a marriage relationship, you don't want continual warfare. Uh, that's counterproductive kind of, of what God's design for marriage is. It's not that you can't have a peaceful relationship with an unbeliever. You can, but if the unbeliever is unwilling, and the believers done everything they possibly can to be a peacemaker in the marriage uh, Paul says you're not bound. He doesn't say you have to get divorced or you have to leave, but it's just that you're not bound if the unbeliever does not want to continue in the marriage. There's no there's no guilt that's involved. There's a sense in which the unbeliever has abandoned the relationship. And you know, you could say, well, but you're married to me. We made vows together and you can plead and beg and cajole and do everything in your power looking to win them back. But even there, Paul says there's a limit to the, what you're going to do. Uh, and and the recognition is: there's a time to quit. There's a time to quit, and 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 the concern is that God's called us to peace. So if you're in a, a, a Bible study or in a church where there's constant conflict, constant discord, you're unhappy; they're they're unhappy with you. Um, you know, the Christian world is a large world; it's a wide world. There is other context in which we can fellowship with with people where that strife does not exist. Now, if we're the cause of the strife, maybe we need to just to back away. Now, we need to maybe not make issues of things that are hot-button issues at the present time. So you can continue in that fellowship, but be wise, uh, realizing you can't be raising... uh, Someone wrote a book, I I think it's one of the Ortlunds, Ray Ortlund's kids, uh, there's a couple of them that write books, and one of them is called um, Knowing the Hills to Die On, (laughs) is what he called it. Um, You have to be discerning, what are the right hills to die on? You just can't make massive issues of significance about every little thing. And, And if it's a matter of things that all Christians agree on, then, maybe it's time to say, "Well, look, if they if they don't see that and it's clearly part of biblical teaching, maybe I'm not going to be comfortable in that group. But if it's a matter of just something where you know we have as a church. And I was talking to Greg Nichols about this earlier in the week. We met for lunch up in Kingston. And I think we both agreed on this 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 matter that we can so get caught up in the things that are distinctive to us as Reformed and Baptistic Christians, that we make that the most important thing. And what we relate to in terms of our identity is our distinctives. The things that we hold as part of the teaching of God's word that other Christians don't see, or they see it in a different way. And if we're going to make those distinctives the constant theme of every interaction, of every um, interface with another person, well, we're going to live a very contentious life, first of all. Um, And also, we probably have misdefined ourselves. Because the things that ought to define us are not the things we hold distinctive to us that other Christians don't hold it's the things that all Christians agree on that's really what defines us you know there's no Christian church that's going to deny the lordship of Christ there's no Christian church that's going to deny that Jesus was raised from the dead there's no Christian church that's going to deny um, um, that you know of the second coming I mean basic biblical teaching is something we share with all Christians and my point is when we look at ourselves and we ask ourselves well what is it that defines me as as a Christian is it the fact that I believe in unconditional election I believe in unconditional election that's there in scripture he chose us we didn't choose him he chose us to me it's plain to me it's clear but I do know that there are a lot of people in the church that have problems with that. They, they try to reason it out, and they feel that that is maybe saying something about God that Scripture doesn't say, that some, somehow that militates against His love, or whatever else, whatever their objections are. They have those objections, and they're deep-seated objections. I think a lot of times when you talk it out with people and you try to explain what you really conceive Scripture to teach about election, we can come to a meeting of the minds, but a lot of times people aren't willing to have a meeting of the minds. They get defensive. They get defensive. And they tend to label you. They tend to put you in a box so you're Calvinistic or you're this or you're that or you're whatever. And I don't particularly like those terminologies. I don't think Calvin would have liked it that people were going around be calling themselves Calvinists. Um, you know, I think he wasn't he buried in an unmarked grave. You know, it wasn't as if he wanted to have his name uh, for all perpetuity uh, associated with the things he taught, because he saw himself as a teacher of the church. He saw himself as just simply a part of the. You know, that, that stream of, of biblical understanding and teaching through the centuries. since so He was just a teacher in the church. He would have been happy with just the title of a teacher, like every other teacher in the church. A pastor of a flock of people. Um, a celebrity? No. Uh, someone who everybody designates themselves as an, you know, in terms of an ist or an ism. <laughs> you know, we, we should really be careful about ist and isms. Um, we're Christians, and that should be the name that uh, suffices us. And again, the point of our identity should be um, the things that unite all believers, though we recognize there are distinctives that we hold. And it's not that we're ashamed of the distinctions. It's not that we won't talk about them. It's just we don't make them central. We make them aspects of the whole counsel of God. But, you know, when you think of it... Um, We talk about election when the Scripture talks about election. But the Scripture doesn't talk about election in every chapter of the book. And you would think in some people's eyes, in some people's teaching, or some people's ministry, that's all the Bible talked about, was divine sovereignty. And I realize we are creatures of... um, extremes and we tend to recoil against one extreme by going to the other extreme uh, you're weak on that point so we're going to be strong on that point well let's be biblical on the point let's be biblical on all points uh, we're not five point anythings we're we're all the points of biblical teaching christians and all the points of biblical teaching need to be first of all heard by us We need to hear God's Word. I'm going to probably address some of this next week. Um, I'm going to be looking at uh, several passages of the Scriptures in the coming weeks in which uh, the words, one thing, is found. One thing. One thing. I've asked of the Lord that I'll also seek after. That's what we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 27, verse 4. The one thing of dwelling in the house of the Lord. All the days of our lives to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in His temple. And the next week we're going to look at um, Jesus saying about Mary that she's chosen one thing that's, that's necessary. The one, one thing necessary, she's chosen. Uh, that's, and, and it won't be taken from her. It won't be taken from her. And what was that? That was sitting at Jesus' feet, hearing the words that He spoke, it's receiving the teaching. And is receiving the teaching in all points of the teaching. We're to be sponges, taking it all in, not just the things we uh, we say. Well, oh, people aren't seeing that, so we now we see it. A lot of times that becomes a point of pride. A lot of times that becomes a point of uh, uh, also you know contention. Let's argue with people about it. And and, and I know we've all done it. I, it's something was was one of my uh, as a, as a young believer. Um, one of the things I just love to do is to wrestle with people about sovereignty of God and election and the extent of the atonement and, and, and all those things. And um, again, it's not that those things are not to be talked about. It's just they're not to be made the constant points of repetition again and again and again and again. So when the church has a conference, what is it? Well, the five points. We've got five speakers to speak about five points of biblical teaching. What about all the other points of biblical teaching? They, they, they get ignored because you're constantly harping upon those five points of distinctiveness. So I think we have to look at ourselves and say, am I fit to be in this study if, I'm not, if, if, if my concern is to persuade people to come to my point of view uh, when perhaps they're unwilling and usually the, the, the path that you need to take with people when you have differences of opinion is to begin with the things that you agree on, to begin with the things that you see eye-to-eye about, and then so talk to people about those things and that you bless them, that you, you encourage them in the very things that they um, believe, so that they, maybe they'll look at you and say, you know what? That's wonderful. I've, I never quite saw it in that way. That's really good that you express uh, that truth about Jesus. That you know it's so clearly there, and I love it. And it's uh, thank you, thank you. And, and then you have a little bit of cre- uh, street cred. You have a little bit of credibility in their eyes. Oh, Mike knows quite a lot about Jesus. What else does he know about what other things? <laughs> Maybe we can then uh, you know pick his brain. About what he thinks about a bunch of things, and usually that's the that's the way to engage in um, the subtle art of persuasion of things that you have as distinctives. You don't make it the chief thing. Um, It's stuff you get around to, but you get around to it in the course of a relationship that's deepening and growing in the things of the gospel that all Christians hold as true and then if it's constant friction and constant um, tension and constant conflict then I think the principle simply comes in what what use is this? God's called us to peace let me go find a, a group of people I can gather with and uh, we can really know peace with one another, and the joy of, of studying God's word, without these constant points of of of, of tension. So, okay. Anything else? Well, Mike, it's kind of a. Nice inroad into things I have been thinking about. Again, it's the new year, and when the new year comes, it's usually my practice to, at least for the first couple of weeks, um, sometimes more than just a couple of weeks, to engage in a series of studies on uh, something that's appropriate for the beginning of the new year. And I mentioned I chose those uh, passages that speak about the one thing, this one thing I do. Um, I've chosen three of them. There's a couple of others that are possibilities. I might not get into them. But these are things that I think, if we really take them to heart, they, they provide for us something of the um, of the focus, uh, of the goal, uh, the singular goals that we should be setting out for ourselves. This one thing I do, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that I will seek after. He's chosen the one thing necessary. (laughs) There are these one things that Scripture speaks about that come right to the heart of what we're called to be concerned about as God's people. And I really think when you reduce the the one things of Scripture or the priorities of Scripture, um, we really see a concern that is centered in the person and um, the saving accomplishments of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there's a Christ-centeredness about the Word of God. I mean, we've looked at uh, the book of Isaiah for a number of weeks, in which um, I've tried to point out that it's all about Jesus. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, that these are they that testify of me. Um, and so Christ is the, the spirit of prophecy. He is the central figure of of the prophetic message he's the one who comes to fulfill uh, the law and the prophets he's come to um, do the things that the prophets spoke of that would come to pass so the whole Old Testament is very much from the perspective of uh, um, you know, the, out, the unfolding of, of, of God's revelation it's promise that's fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. So you have the Old Testament as, as the as the as the covenant of promise or the, or the the volume that speaks of promise and the New Testament just is the fulfillment of the promise. And so Christ is central to the Old Testament and He's central to the New Testament as well. We come into the New Testament, then we begin with the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We begin with Jesus, the Son of God. We begin with Christ and His uh, the the first four Gospels. And then the book of Acts are the things that, it says, uh, 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 Luke speaks of his first volume when he says to Theophilus in chapter 1 of the book of Acts that the former volume or the former treatise uh, 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 concerned the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until he was taken up, into heaven. Um, Well, what's the book of Acts? It's the things he continues to do and to teach Um, from the right hand of the majesty on high as he sends forth his spirit, as he arrests uh, uh, Paul on the road to Damascus and Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? You persecute The church, you persecute me. Jesus is in union with his people. And so the book of Acts is the story of what Jesus continued to do in the building of his church. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And of course, the letters of the New Testament are letters to the churches and the churches are the gathering of the people who are identified as believers in the Lord Jesus. Jesus is central. And central in in a particular way I think in the writings of the Apostle Paul. I think with Paul, again, you not only have someone who was an Old Testament scholar who could see very clearly once Christ was revealed to him that the Old Testament spoke of Christ, and so he's continually um, referring to to Jesus as uh, um, the the heart and substance of the Old Testament scriptures, and whatever things that were spoken for time, he says, were spoken for our Learning that through faith um, we might uh, we might have hope. What's that language? know uh, yeah, verse in, uh, chapter fifteen and verse four of Romans. For whatever was written in former days, speaking of the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. This is for believers in Jesus. This is for those who become part of the New Testament Church. The Old Testament is our book. It's not the book of some other group. It's our group. Our book. It's the book of the church. It's the book that speaks of. Jesus. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope, meaning believers in the Lord Jesus. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So Jesus is central to everything in Paul's experience, in everything in Paul's life, in everything in Paul's Ministry, everything in Paul's teaching everything in Paul's letters Um, again you have to consider what a remarkable uh, transition took place on the road to Damascus when he's out looking to just simply obliterate the name of Christ from the earth he's looking to persecute those that call upon this name and he's on the road to Damascus he hears that voice from heaven sees the, the blinding light and he knows this is God He knows this is God. The voice of God is something that spoke from Mount Sinai. I mean, when you hear a voice coming out of a blinding light and you're a Jew of the Old Testament, you'll think of Mount Sinai, the the, the fiery appearance of the God of glory on the mount, speaking forth his words to Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or, <clears throat> I am the Lord your God who's taken you from the house of, 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 uh, the, of the land of bondage. Have no other gods before me, as he spoke the words of the Ten Commandments. He knows that's the voice of God. He's a well instructed Jew. That didn't just happen. And you just say, well, it's just some, uh, you know, some other phenomenon that you don't associate with Israel's God. He associates it with Israel's God. And so when he hears those, those, that voice, it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He then says, who are you, Lord? It's obviously the Lord. Can't be anybody else but the Lord. But the great question is, who is this Lord? Who is this Lord that now is speaking to me from heaven? Who are you, Lord? That's very much a different question than Moses asked. Who shall I say uh, sent me? <laughs> when I come back to the pe- nation, the people of Israel, and they ask, oh, you know, who is it that has told you to lead us out of e- Egypt? Uh, what shall I tell him is your name? Well, God tells uh, Moses his name, I am. Uh, that voice from heaven told Paul his name. I am Jesus, whom you persecute. And what an amazing revolution of understanding that brought about. That everything in the Old Testament is referring to the God of Israel who was enfleshed in the person of of Jesus. And everything about knowing God came because God spoke to him in Christ, through Christ. And everything he comes to learn uh, about God is now Christ-centered. God, the God who caused light to shine in the darkness of creation has now shined into our hearts to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul becomes this Christ-centered teacher, preacher. And again, you know, we think many times that uh, Paul is mainly the, the, the the teacher of justification by faith and there's no question he teaches justification by faith or he's the teacher of the sovereignty of no question he teaches the sovereignty of God. But preeminently he's the he teaches Christ. He preaches Christ. He says to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him is crucified. And my speech and my preaching would not with persuasive words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He saw himself as one who's, who was God's instrument to convey Christ, to mediate Christ, to bring Christ and his gospel to the attention of his hearers, And then in the letter to the churches, again to affirm, again and again and again, the the blessings of the gospel come from Jesus, come from his saving accomplishment, from what he has done. Our lives are to be lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Everything is to be centered in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And as I was thinking about this, again I'm trying to think, what should I preach for the edification of the people and the coming of the new year. And I thought to go down something of the road of a Christ-centeredness, but we're going to get there. We're going to get there in these these one-thing passages uh, because they do bring us to Jesus. I mean, you can't think of this 27 Psalm. I'm going to probably give you something of the message you have of it this morning now. But uh, when you think about it, uh, David is thinking of uh, the house of God. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that uh, shall, will I seek after that I might dwell in the house of the Lord the days, all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord to inquire in his temple he met God at the temple he met God at the house of God which was the house of his divine dwelling and it was the house of meeting God dwelt in the tent. He dwelt in the temple. The people met with him there, uh, through, their, through the, uh, the priestly mediation of uh, the high priest. Uh, bringing the, uh, I'm going to get into the message if I go any further. But the point of it is, when you ask the question, "Well, how do we meet God?" because we don't have a temple. Yeah, we do. The temple is Jesus. Jesus is the temple. He's the place of divine dwelling. In him the fullness of the God had dwelt bodily. God dwells in Jesus. And we come to meet God in Jesus. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except uh, through me. And so even those one thing passages ultimately bring us uh, to Jesus. Mary sitting at the the feet of who? (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Receiving his words, drinking in his words. This one thing I do, Paul says, uh, putting the things behind and pressing forward to that which is before. He presses on to the mark of the high calling of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus, so everything is related to Christ, uh, even in those one thing passages. But I was really thinking about the letter to the Philippians. Um, Tom told me that he was thinking of doing the Friday night Bible study with a study of uh, Philippians. I gave a recommendation of a book that I've been reading that uh, really is an opening up of uh, Philippians uh, four eight. I believe it is whatsoever things are true, whatever things are are. Um, or just, whatever things are pure, of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. There's two more items that were in there. But that verse became a little complicated for me. I'm not prepared to, to do that just yet. But just as I was thinking about the Philippian letter, and Paul's saying, think on these things. You might think, well, these are things wholly unrelated to, uh, to, uh, to Jesus. Until uh, I said to my wife, I'm thinking of preaching on Philippians 4, eight Whatsoever things are pure and just and good report and lovely and the rest. And, and she told us, uh, we were together with the Nichols, and she told us a story of uh, praying that passage one night in, uh, I think it was a ministry context in New York City when we were going to these uh, places in New York City, we were uh, looking to have outreach to people in the city, that, that, that she was praying in the light of that. It might have been a different location, but anyway, she was praying that passage. And all of a sudden, it dawned on her that all of those qualities that she's praying about are embodied in Jesus. So she, so she says to me, "Who embodies those things?" And so I, I said to her, "I said, is this a is this a Sunday school question? Who embodies these things?" Because the answer to Sunday school questions are always either Jesus or the Bible, right? That's the answer to Sunday school questions. So I said, this isn't a trick question, is it? No, it's Jesus, of course. But you know, you come at the fact that it's Jesus by just following Paul's perspectives in the book of Philippians, that he sets out everything in his presentation to the Philippians that brings us to a Christ-centeredness of understanding. And if you just back up from verse 8. Now, I should actually uh, just point out one thing in verse 9. He says, What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You know, Paul says, I'm the model for this. What you've seen in me. What you've heard in me. What you've um, received from me. Practice these things. There's a sense of which it's not just Jesus who's the embodiment of the just and the pure and the lovely and the commendable and the excellent. But all who are in Jesus ought to be in some way um, approximating. You know, we, don't have, we don't have these things down perfectly, we don't, none of us but yet we should be growing in these very things, we should be thinking of these things and the things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable these are things that should characterize us because they characterize Paul clearly and Paul sets himself out as a model to be followed imitate me Follow me, the things you've heard and seen in me, received and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Again, the way in which Jesus becomes mediated or known among his people is in other of his people. Uh, how did you grow as a Christian? You say, oh, I just read the Bible, or I just read Calvin's Institutes, or I just read Matthew Henry's commentary, and I became a really perceptive Christian. Well, chances are that you had models in your own church life that were far more influential than even your own Bible reading. Because you saw what the things you were reading in the Bible becoming embodied in the saints that you came to know. You saw it enfleshed. I mean, there's a sense in which we see God enfleshed in the person of Jesus, and Jesus becomes enfleshed in his people. He dwells in us by his Spirit. And we come to know Christ because Christ is present in his people. Now, I. And I saw the nickels and we had our, our lunch and uh, it's been a while since I've seen them and you know, I just wrote him a little note and I said, I'm just so thankful for our friendship through the years and I'm thankful for the way that you have spoken and, 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 and shown I think he used the word spoken and shown Christ in the things you say, in the things you do you show forth Christ and uh, you know there was a time when he was a teacher he taught me Greek Uh, He taught me uh, doctrine of God and uh, doctrine of salvation. But whatever he taught me in terms of doctrine, I think I learned more just from his example. I learned more from hearing him pray. I learned more from just his devotion and enthusiasm and commitment to the things of the gospel. Those are the things that for me became quite infectious. Um, So we learn from one another as the things of the gospel are embodied in one another. And, you know, we enter into the new year, that should be something of a goal we have. Yes, be Christ-centered, but one of the ways we become Christ-centered is look at those who are modeling Christ-centeredness and learn from them. And then seek to be a teacher of others just in the way we model the gospel, just in the way we show forth the gospel, because we're thinking upon the things that are... True and honorable and just and pure and lovely we're, 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 we're walking the walk so that the realities of the gospel will be mediated to others I mean we're you know we're, we're teaching our kids long before we ever sit them down and teach them Bible stories we're teaching them in the way we love them and relate to them we're showing either grace or we're showing um, evil and and their parents that are evil and their parents that act evilly towards their children and crush them and wound them and they become quite devastated because of parents that are just not Christ-like at all but we're to be Christ-like parents in the way we modeled the gospel before our children and before we ever teach them anything in a formal way we're we're, we're teaching them just by the way we act, just the way we behave in their presence so we're continually teaching and we're continually teaching one another so the point of it is that Paul becomes um, as as well as Jesus, the embodiment of these things just because he's Christ-centered himself and he's following Christ and he is uh, demonstrating that Christ-centeredness Almost at every point of the letter, and just uh, let me just go through just some of these verses. Just I'll read them to you. I mean, you look at uh, the way in which these um, practical exhortations are given at the end of the letter, and verse eight, of course, is part of that. Um, he begins in uh, verse four. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Thus, in the Lord, my beloved, stand firm in the Lord in your union with Christ stand firm in him I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to what? agree in the Lord they're having a problem agreeing with one another they're having a problem getting on with one another well they can agree about Jesus can't they? if they're Christians they most certainly do and will so agree in the Lord then verse 4 rejoice in the Lord so stand firm in the Lord verse 1 agree in the Lord verse 2 rejoice in the Lord verse 4 and again I say rejoice then let your reasonableness be known to everyone and that reasonableness it's, it's a singular word it's, uh, it's not found anywhere else in the New Testament and it's this idea it would seem of just a a disposition that is sweet, a sweet reasonableness—that you're not caustic, you're not hard-hearted, you're not disabsorbed um, absorbed with your own things. You're looking to show forth a sweet a quality of uh, a sweetness, a sweet reasonableness that's to be known to everyone. And why should that be? Because the Lord's at hand the Lord's at hand here's your motivation Jesus is at hand he will come and he will judge the living and the dead we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ the Lord is at hand bring your conduct under the government and discipline of the one who said I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest to your souls that sweet reasonableness was really qualities you see in Jesus where he says I am meek and lowly in heart and what do you think that meant to people? who walked in Jesus' pathway, that he could say of himself, I am meek and lowly in heart. You know, there's a sense of which we all think it would have been wonderful to be in the presence of Jesus. But remember what Peter said when Jesus said, throw out the nets, and he brought in that great uh, draft of fish into the nets, and he said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I mean, his sense was, in the presence of someone who could do things like he did, this one who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, I'm a sinful man. Um, Standing in the presence of Israel's God, this is not a, a comfortable place to be. Again, no one ever met God in the Bible that didn't tremble, that didn't fear Uh, One of the most frequent things that is said when an angel comes or God appears, fear not, fear not, fear not. Because people fear in the presence of God. It's most unusual that God would make an appearance and speak. But it's something that we see people falling down at their feet as one dead. Um, I've seen God and and, and how can I live? No one can see God and live. Um, And yet Jesus, who is God, he says, I'm meek and lowly in heart don't be driven away I draw you to myself come to me come to me I'm meek and lowly in heart I'm not here to do you ill I'm here to save I'm here to do you good you'll find rest to your soul come to me come to me that's sweet reasonableness drawing people to yourself and not driving them away the Lord's at hand. Yes? Yeah, uh, that's how I, was, how I was thinking that the Lord is at hand. It says, let your gentleness be known to all men. And the fact that the Lord is at hand is that we can come to him to have that gentleness. Is, is that a way to look at that also? know, the fact that the Lord is at hand, that he's at hand to us, To give us the grace to be. Okay. Well, it can be taken in a spatial sense that he's near to us at hand in that way. But usually it it is referring to a temporal sense in terms of his coming. And uh, I would think that would imply uh, accountability, standing before the Lord. Have we properly reflected him to other people? Have we distorted him or have we properly conveyed the heart of Jesus to others? And in this attitude of sweet reasonableness or gentleness or however you, do, you translate it we, we 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 show forth Christ we model Christ for others but you know again the the point is it's it's conduct that we're called to because of Jesus he sets the model he sets the tone he Gives the the power. He gives the enablement. He is the one who enables us to stand firm. He's the one that enables us to agree. He's the one who enables us to rejoice. He's the one who enables us to demonstrate a sweet reasonableness before other people. Um, again, then the call to uh, not to be anxious, but in everything in prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus again it's in union with the Son of God that our hearts and minds are guarded they're garrisoned and again in Philippi there was the Roman garrison in which they would know that's where um, your you retreat when trouble comes you go where the where the soldiers are that will protect you. All these sentinels that will be around you. Well, the peace of God operates in that way as sentinels sent sentinels around us, guarding us, protecting us in Christ Jesus. So again, the Christ centeredness um, of the passage um, um, is so evident in that Paul. Um, then he's not just giving moral <clears throat> uh, platitudes. He's not just saying, uh, oh, here's what religious people do. Uh, religious people are you know, kind, and they're, they're gentle, and they're defensive and they're uh, not filled with undue anxieties. But it's all in Christ Jesus that all these things come into Reality. And it's in Christ Jesus we learn these things. And it's in Christ Jesus we, again, model these things uh, for others. So, again, I think the point I'm trying to make is, yes, Jesus embodies these things, but we're called to embody them also. And we're called to embody them also as we learn of, of Him from the Word, yes, from the Gospels, yes, from the teaching about Christ throughout the length and breadth of Scripture, yes, But I think one of the areas of learning we tend to not emphasize as much as we should is what we're to learn from others. What we're to learn from the lives of others who model the things of the gospel for others because they themselves are rooted and grounded in the things of Christ. Again, so much of this is a Christ-centered book, where again and again and again, Jesus comes to the fore, Uh, just some highlights, uh, I mean, you really go anywhere in Philippians and see Jesus there, but um, when you think of uh, particularly the third chapter, when he speaks of uh, we, in verse 3. We are the circumcision, or the true circumcision. And this is definitional of who we are, as the people of God. Uh, We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. We're a people who glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Our confidence is not in our abilities. It's not in our wisdom. It's not in our... Our charisma. It's not in our giftedness. It's in Christ Jesus that we put our confidence. It's in Him that we glory. And Paul says, I myself, I, I have reason for confidence in the flesh if you want to, if you want to measure things by what you can claim about your birth and your ancestry and your education and your training. Paul says, I have more than most on these points. He speaks of himself being circumcised on the eighth day he's a Jew circumcised people of Israel tribe of Benjamin Hebrew of Hebrews probably they're a Hebrew speaking Jew not just a Greek speaking Jew Uh, as to the law a Pharisee the strictest sect of the Jewish religion as to zeal a persecutor of the church look what I did for the sake of the religion of my ancestors I saw this Jesus movement as a threat and I was at the front lines opposing it persecutor so filled with zeal it's the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, and again, here's he's a guy who's advancing in the Jewish religion. He's becoming a chief rabbi. He's becoming a mover and a shaker. He's becoming somebody who's prominent in his own nation. And yet everything that you could count as a gain for himself, he says, I count as loss because of the surpassing worth of, Of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. I mean, can you imagine that? You lose all things. You lose your reputation. You lose your place and position in your society, in your culture. You're now deemed to be a troublemaker, an outcast, an object now of persecution when once you were the top dog persecuting others and you say look at what I've lost look at what I've lost Paul says no, 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 no look at what I've gained look at what I've gained I have Christ and having Christ I have all that is needed I'm complete in him he is the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily and I am full and complete in him Count these things as rubbish, as a stronger word there, of course, is, uh, is excrement, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know Him. Not just know that I'm forgiven and, and, and righteous, but know Him, Him, the power of His resurrection. Even the fellowship of his sufferings, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him became his great goal, the great ambition of his life. Not that I've already obtained or already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I belong to him. He defines my identity. He, I'm in him. Righteousness is in him. Life is in him. Sufferings make me conform to his death. Everything in life is seen in relationship to Christ. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When Paul speaks about living or dying, as he's now in a Roman prison. Could well be he'll come before Caesar and they'll say, off with your head. Off with your head. Executioner, come forth, take this man out and chop his head off. Paul says in verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this, that is this imprisonment, will turn out for deliverance. One way or another, I'm gonna be delivered. I'm gonna be delivered in the jail cell one way or another. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now is always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For for me to live is Christ. Is Christ. Life equals Christ. Doesn't equal NFL football it doesn't equal GOP politics it doesn't equal Wall Street gains in the stock market it doesn't equal entertainment vegging out on Netflix that's not what life is about life is Christ and then to die is gain because as you want to say death means more of Christ for me to live is Christ to die is gain it means more of Christ my desire is to depart and be with Christ that's what death means it means departure from this world to be with Christ but yet if I remain in the flesh it's more needful for you you got your apostle around a little bit longer to teach you to pray for you to encourage you to model Jesus for you he says so in verse 26 that in me you may have ample cause to glory not in me but in Christ Jesus. You don't glory in Paul. You don't glory in Calvin. You don't glory in Luther. You don't glory in the Pope. The one that just died or the one that's still living. You don't glory in any Pope or any man. You glory in Christ Jesus. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Of Christ, so I'm going to recommend. I'm going to stop here. Just recommend read Philippians in the next couple of days and and note the Christ-centered nature of it. We just just you know gave a little bit of an overview from a couple of the chapters, but it's it's just so so Christ-centered a letter now, as all of Paul's letters are Christ-centered, but I think this one in particular just uh, gripped me for the way in which. Paul himself is centered in Christ but not only so centered in Christ that his life, not just his teaching not just his letters but his life, an example the things you received and heard and seen to be in me is fragrant of Christ it speaks of Christ it demonstrates Christ it mediates Christ to other people what an ambition to live your life so that Christ would be mediated to them. And people don't even have to open up the Bible to know about Christ, but still see Him in you. I was just going to go back to verse 8 again. Um, Which chapter? 4, eight, you know, four eight, yeah. Because over the past several months, I had a friend who was talking to me about all these things. And, you know, we know that Christ embodies all those things. And we're called to, and as Tim said, we can't without the Lord's help. But I think the thing that just stood out to me that maybe I didn't notice before, Well, in the King James, it says meditate on these things. The other version said think on these things. And that just, it just made me realize that when our thoughts get on something else that isn't these things, that's when we need to ask the Lord's help even with, about thinking things. Yeah, well, just take the opposite of those things Mm -hmm. and uh, see where it lands you. Um, Whatever whatever is false, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is ugly and hateful, whatever is disgraceful. You want to be associated with those things? That's the opposite. You know, we're, we're the pursuing one or the other we're either pursuing the things that are true and just and but you know again you think about it all the things of the world that we tend to experience on a daily basis we come away from it either having these virtues highlighted for us or reinforced or else they get undermined you spend an afternoon listening to talk radio. What do you come away with? You come away with the things that are necessarily true? Well, you have a lot of people's opinions. There's people who call up and yell, and they. Everybody's spouting their own opinions. Everybody's spouting their own views. Maybe true, maybe not. Honorable? Not necessarily. Just? Probably not, because they're looking to, you know, own the other side is what they're looking to do. Just put other people down. I mean, it's not a help. It's not a help in these things. It's one of the reasons I stopped listening to talk radio. I stopped listening to sports radio. <laughs> Again, in terms of the way in which Med fans look to kill the Yankee fans and Yankee fans... I mean, you walk away with your blood pressure raised. All these people spouting their opinions. And it's not reinforcing any of these things. And really almost any of our activities you can weigh along those lines. How is it... Is it underscoring all these things? Is it reinforcing all these things? Or is it undermining all these things? And there's a lot of things you just simply have to say, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. I I think I'm coming into this new year, and I know there's lots of things that I just do habitually that probably are not the best things for me. They're not the best things for spiritual growth. They're not the best things for um, thinking upon these things. And I need to be rid of them. Why would I want to pursue them? if it's not going to reinforce the true and the honorable and the just and the pure and the lovely and and the commendable, and if it's just going to introduce things false and dishonorable and unjust and impure and ugly, and by their fruits you shall know them. What kind of fruits is all this producing in your life? Be honest. Be honest. And uh, it may be that you need to spend more time in Maybe fellowship with a Christian that's really grasped something of the gospel, something of the, the image of Christ, and say, you know, I'd like to spend more time with you. Um, I'd like to pray with you. Uh, can we do that? Can we, you know, you know, read a book that's highlighting the virtues of the Christian life, or a book that's just shedding light on, on, on Jesus? I really hope that book that I recommended that you guys read from the, Philippi- the Friday Night Study is a help. I think it's wonderfully written and um, I think it does present uh, just what the issues are to be wiser, just more discerning, more stable, more christ-centered and more god-honoring uh, believers. So I just wanted to throw all that out to you as we begin uh, a new year um, To be Christ-centered, to be looking to embody these graces and looking to be models for others by the help of God's grace and presence. Well, let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time, what we could spend in considering the Christ-centeredness of the Philippian letter the Christ-centeredness of the life of the Apostle Paul. And we pray, Lord, that we would have something of that mind of Christ in us, that mind of selfless service to others, that mind that is not all caught up in our own ambitions or our own agendas, but looking to serve you and your purposes, your will, your agenda, your kingdom, the reign of your Son, and be able to be a blessing to others, and to be a help to others, not just in the things we say, and but in the things we do, in the attitudes of our lives that reflect something of the fact that we have been with Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless us in this coming year, strengthen us in our faith, help us to abound in grace for the glory of your name, and the good of your people, as we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.